Back in the day, Sesame Street had this bit called Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood? And it had a song with the same name. Perhaps you remember it. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood? <laughs> it was catchy, smart, informative, and kind of weird in the way that Sesame Street was in the 1970s. The premise was to teach little kids and toddlers about what they might see while they were out walking around the streets where they lived. It had a human actor introducing the song and then walking along the streets and meeting different Muppets who were firemen or grocers or a police officer. And then that Muppet would sing a few lines about what they did in their job. It's pretty cute. But the real beauty of this song, and the thing it did most brilliantly, was it presented little kids with an idea that there was a whole world outside of what they knew in their home. All around them, there were places that had people with jobs, and it all functioned within the parameters of what was called a neighborhood. A group of non-related people living in proximity to one another interacting daily, working together, looking after one another, sharing interests. This seemingly silly song invited little kids to reconsider what they thought they knew about the world around them, as it did for me. I must have been three or four and had only really ever been around my parents, siblings, and some extended family. And then, boom, what? There's a whole world outside of this? There's more? People and places and stuff and things? I'm not the only one. Whew, talk about trippy. The irony of this was that I grew up in a very rural area with hardly any neighbors, let alone a neighborhood. There was no walking down the street and seeing a policeman or firefighter or grocer hanging about. But once I made that mental leap, the places, people, things, and communities existed outside of my household. I had no problem understanding that these things called neighborhoods existed elsewhere, and that, in fact, there was an elsewhere elsewhere. So early on, the idea that a neighborhood doesn't have to be something right near you was well set into my mind. And in the age of the internet, the meaning of neighborhood has changed even more. It resembles more of what I experienced in my rural upbringing, in that there are people in other places you can connect to, people with whom you might have a shared interest. And now we can hop on the computer and do a video chat, or hear their voice connecting to us across the internets in, say, a podcast. We can find our own neighborhoods these days. Virtual place where we connect with people and share interests. Interests like cemeteries. And is it any wonder that people connect via cemeteries? After all, it can be argued that cemeteries themselves are a kind of neighborhood, albeit a strange one, in that, other than proximity, the only thing you have in common with everyone else is that you're all dead. But take it where you can get it, right? Of course, cemeteries, like anything, have various facets that inspire study and interest. They provide a million ways for people alive and dead to connect. This neighborhood, if you will, of cemetery studies is where I've met some truly exciting, wonderful kindred spirits. Haha, <laughs> spirits get it. This is where I met Liz Clappen. Listen to my podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, where you're from, and, you know, anything that you might think we might find interesting about the sort of stuff that you do, like what's your Hogwarts house or? <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely Slytherin. 
Oh. I know it might be a controversial opinion, but it is what it is. You're the first uh, Slytherin I've ever met, I have to say. Oh wow! Well, I'll, I will take that. I will. I will take that. I, I hopefully I am representative of the better side of our house. Um, you may have heard some scurrilous rumors. Just a few. But, just a few. Um, hey man, Slytherin's got its problems, but at least it's not Hufflepuff. Full disclosure, I'm a Hufflepuff. So lame. At the intersection in the Venn diagram of New Englanders who are history nerds, who like cemeteries, who have anthropology degrees, who work in cultural resource management, who have cemetery podcasts, there aren't that many people. Maybe only two. Me and the amazing Liz Clappen. I think, given all the places where our lives have overlapped, it's safe to say that Liz is a person in my neighborhood, and I am a person in hers. In my late 20s, got laid off, and I decided to go back to school, and I became an architectural historian, which most people still don't believe is a real career, but believe it or not, it is. Um, and my specialization within architectural history is cemeteries. Liz has a great cemetery podcast called Tomb with a View, and like many of us in the cemetery podcast game, we'd been admiring each other's work from afar for a while before we connected and struck up a friendship. I got a chance to interview Liz recently and find out a lot about her and her work and how all of that plays into her passion for cemetery advocacy and preservation. As I said, she is a New Englander, but has worked in different places around the country different cultures and different histories from that of the Northeast, giving Liz a unique perspective that she brings to her day job as an urban planner and also in the topics she covers in her Tomb with a View podcast, which you should all be listening to if you don't already. So, come on in and meet Liz Clappen. We're talking all things cemetery tonight, the modern issues pertaining to site maintenance, gravestones, unmarked graves, and our reckoning with history. Liz has some new ideas about the future of historic cemeteries that will make every taffophile in the room very happy, so you don't want to miss this. Grab a drink and sit down, friend. Welcome to our neighborhood. I'm Gail Golick. And this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 10, Neighborhood. So, while... I don't necessarily have a job day to day that has me working in a cemetery. I do focus a lot of my attention in historic preservation, in architectural history, on cemeteries, not just as places that are burial spots, but are part of a larger context. They are part of a cultural landscape, and often they include a lot of artistic value and a lot of socio-cultural values. For my day job, I am an urban planner and I work for the city of Atlanta, which is where I also live. Though I am a native of New England, I was born and raised in Rhode Island, the tiny state with very many cemeteries. So I have slowly over time made my way south. Uh, I've been living in Georgia for 10 years now, first in Savannah where I went to graduate school and now in Atlanta for the past five years. So. That's kind of how I ended up here, um, but I also am in the cemetery podcasting game along with Gail. Almost three years ago now, I started a podcast called Tomb of the View, and I thought it was a terribly clever name. Uh, and at the time, there were no American cemetery podcasts. There was one in Canada, and you know, having a background in research and in writing about cemeteries and in researching cemeteries. I was very frustrated with the fact that 
it was so hard to do that research because so much of the information academic and otherwise was just hidden behind paywalls. So I wanted to try to be a resource for people who were interested in learning about cemeteries who might not be college professors to give them a way that they could find good information that was easily accessible. And that's kind of where I started and hopefully it's still what I'm doing today. <laughs> well, that's the, the one of the things that I love about your podcast. One of the many things is that I, I too am a, am a research freak and I love, I love podcasts and things that are so that are well-researched and well-presented. And that's definitely what Tomb with a View is for me. And I learn so much every time I listen to your show because that you, you have a, just the way you set it up, you have, so you have a, you know, a topic for the day and it's like a mini research paper that for some people that would, that like me who love research that that's just an exciting way to it's like you're you know like podcasts are like you're talking with somebody you're hearing hearing a lecture or you're hearing somebody talk about something they're very interested in and you just do such a great job uh with with the research and I love that so much it really it really draws me in and it makes me feel confident in what I'm hearing is you know isn't just something that somebody looked up on google five minutes before <laughs> they pressed record <laughs> And, you know, I think that was one of my goals. And the fact is, I try to, I, I try very hard and I have over time, you know, I'm at 114 episodes now, I've tried to find the right balance. You know, there are a lot of people out there who don't have the capacity to listen to an hour long episode about a specific topic. And I appreciate that. And it's one of the reasons that I do try to mix up my topics. Yeah, And it's funny because I've had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, you announced that you were going to do a whole month on materials and you were going to do a whole 45 minutes to an hour on granite. And I just wanted to claw my eyeballs out. But then when you started talking about it, it was actually more interesting than I thought. And it's because I don't just talk about granite. You know, I talk about where the granite comes from. And I talked about the granite railroad and, you know, how all of that interconnects to translate into what we see today when we go to buy a gravestone. And I think that that's part of it is that I don't strictly fall into history podcasts. And I think probably too, we're very niche, Gail. I mean, I mean, that's, <laughs> cemeteries are a niche, but the fact is you can't talk about cemeteries without talking about history in general and without talking, I think, a lot about American culture. And so I consider my podcast to be cultural as much as history. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you have, you have a, a background in anthropology as well. Yes, my undergraduate degree right. is in anthropology. The joke at the time was, here's your anthropology degree. There is a map of the soup kitchen on the back. <laughs> um, but I mean, and, and it, it, I say it as a joke. And, you know, in college, you know, I went to Belize and did, you know, archaeology in pre-classical Mayan sites. And most archaeology, as you probably can tell, Gail is not that sexy, um, but it's no less significant and... I think that, you know, obviously when people think about anthropology, they generally think about archaeology, about cultures that no longer exist, but cultural anthropology is just as significant. And the idea of studying cultures that do still exist and understanding cultural relativism is so very important. And that's, uh, that's I think, what draws me to cemeteries as well as the, the, the anthropological training that I received. Again, it's, it's one, it is one of those degrees that is sort of amorphous. It can be what you, <laughs> what you put into it or what you make of it afterwards. But I, I've felt that it's, it laid a lot of important groundwork for me going forward into the, the, all the different jobs that I've had since then. Maybe I, I can't say that I had a job as an anthropologist <laughs> per se, but uh, to be able to research, to be able to understand that nuance about culture and how that interacts with language and how that interacts with art and how that interacts with material culture, all of that comes together in, in the work I do now. Well, I am an archeologist, which is part of anthropology, but, <laughs> but I can see that for you too, that probably had a, had, had a significant, uh, was significant in your training as architectural historian, because that's history, culture, art, all, all rolled up into that too. Yeah, no, and I might have to leave now because I really thought I was going to be interviewed by Margaret Mead, so I'm, <laughs> um, but it does. And it's interesting because 
I could always tell that when I got to the historiography and methodology part of architectural history, I really used to annoy my professor because I didn't like other interpretations. You know, I wasn't as interested in the feminist interpretation or the Marxist interpretation of architectural history, even though I understand that those things are an important factor. But like, I always wanted to look at things as part of a cultural landscape. Cultural landscape was my thing. It's still my thing because I think that it's the only category that encompasses all of the other things. Right. Could you just explain what you mean by cultural landscape for people who aren't familiar with that? Absolutely. So the idea that the built environment, the environment that we as humans create, and it's not just the things you would normally think of like houses and stores, but also other landscape features, whether it might be the way that you build a wall, whether it might be the way that you change the landscape for farming, wells, anything like that, railroads, infrastructure, all of those things tell us something about the people who built it and about their values, what their social mores are, all of those things you can get from studying the landscape and the way that we change it. And it could be something as simple as, (laughs) I had an archeologist I worked with once and he walked out into the woods and he was looking at the ground and he said that there's a warehouse near here. And I told him, I said, well, how do you know that? Did you look at a map? And he goes, no. He's like, look at all of these bottles. And sure enough, they, they were trucker bombs. They were bottles that truckers used for dip and they would spit their tobacco juice into these bottles and they would pitch them out the window. And sure enough, we went through this little patch of woods and on the other side, there was a huge supermarket warehouse. So they would pull out and they would pitch their bottles out the window. And they had created this weird little, very gross landscape but you could see it. And the thing was, if you didn't know what to look for, you probably wouldn't recognize the patterns. But the more you look at these things, you can really see, hey, there are certain people who are here who are not in other places and they have marked this landscape in a specific way. Yes. And that's that's uh, endlessly fascinating to me, you know, because you can do that with that example. You can do that with a, a culture right here, right now, what's happening in the, in the present moment. You can do that, apply that to a culture hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 5,000 years ago. And I don't think that that's a, uh, it's, it's history, looking at history, it, it can be kind of limiting if you're not taking into account like the physical culture, like you're talking about the landscape. Um, if you're just talking about events um, but not talking about where it happened and even how, you know, all of those things impact those events. But I, I find oftentimes that's not really part of of those assessments or conversations. It's sort of incidental. <laughs> yeah, and any good archeologist will tell you the best place to find history is in the trash heap, always. You always look for the middens, you always look for the privies because what people throw away tells you a lot more than what they keep. Right. So and, Right, and so it, in, terms of, in terms of cemeteries, you're, you're talking about culture. <laughs> <segue. laughs> That's a huge cultural, uh, a huge cultural, uh, cultural landscape marker, if you will, the, when you find a, a cemetery. And so what, how, how cemetery, where cemeteries are, how they're, how they're taking care of who are in them, that's all, that all plays into that. It absolutely does. And, you know, it's worth noting that in many societies, cemeteries are one of the few features that do stay. And there often are no traces of any particular group aside from cemeteries. So looking at them sometimes is a wealth of cultural information that you cannot get anywhere else. And I can say this particularly as somebody who lives in the South, um, that I find this all too often, um, particularly in Black communities, more so than anywhere else. Well, that's, that's also a great segue um, into one of the things I really wanted to, to dive in with you about. Since, since you have the experience as a New Englander and you're very familiar with the types of things we generally see up here as far as where cemeteries are, um, how they're laid out and who are in them and that sort of thing. But you've had this wonderful life experience of, of going and living 
for a long time in another whole nother part of the country. And I'd be really interested to pick your brain about what are the, the similarities, what are the differences um, that you that you, that you find between the Northeast and the Southeast as far as cemeteries go? Sure. I mean, so I will say that um, I am at a slight disadvantage in the sense just because I grew up in Rhode Island and Rhode <laughs> Island is an unusual place in the sense that they had freedom of religion. So as opposed to many other places in New England, primarily Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, obviously, and as things moved up into Vermont and New Hampshire, a lot of this carried through. Um, the settlement model for Rhode Island was very different. Uh, they did just change their name, but they were originally known as the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Um, but being a place that practiced freedom of religion, there are far more small family cemeteries. So aside from the plantation name, Rhode Island actually has settlement patterns that are a lot more common to the South versus New England. Oh, yeah. Whereas in places like particularly Massachusetts, what you see is their settlement pattern from the early time of colonization is generally based around like a town common or a town green. And town commons or town greens were really important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was common land. And so it was common land for grazing, for drilling the militia, for gathering spaces. So generally you had a meeting house or a church, depending on which era, and a town cemetery on the town green because it was communal land. And there was very little separation of church and state in the early days. So they had that, and you can still see these in Massachusetts. I was up there a couple of weeks ago and I drove through a small town. I'm not even sure what the name of the town was. And I took a turn and suddenly I was on Old Common Road. And as I drove down, you could still see there was probably 10 to 12 little houses around this triangular shaped piece of land. And even though the town center had long ago moved on, you could still see it. Not to say that there aren't those in Rhode Island. There are a few towns that did have them. Um, Little Compton, which is right down on the ocean is one that comes to mind immediately. But in the South, it really didn't develop that way. You have those type of town common cemeteries in some of the coastal cities. So if you go to places like Charleston or Savannah, you have what I would call churchyards. You, know, you have a church and then they have a churchyard next to it. But being more agrarian and much more spread out you tend to have family cemeteries in the South and they tend to be very small. And this lasts for a long time. I'm talking until like right in the late antebellum periods, so like in the 1850s, you start to see larger municipal cemeteries or larger organized cemeteries, but much later than the shift happens in New England. You know, in New England, you start to see the shift right around the turn of the 19th century. Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven develops in 1796. Mount Auburn is founded in 1831. And you start to see first, you know, organized cemetery organizations, then the rural cemetery movement. The rural cemeteries in the South, they don't start until the 1850s. So they were a little bit slower to catch on. And I think it's just because they didn't have that many big cities. Whereas, you know, New England with the industrial revolution having long started before that, you know, cities were growing rapidly. Yeah, and they had to plan for a bunch of dead people. <laughs> what are you exactly. going to do with them? Well, yeah. <laughs> when you have people living in close quarters, guess what also comes? Disease, mm. industrial accidents, all of those things. So death tolls were very, very high. And they had to do something because their churchyards were overrun. So, I mean, I look at something like the city of Atlanta. I mean, the city of Atlanta, which is founded around 1850, we're a little bit of a later city. For the first 30 years that this city existed, there were a couple of small family cemeteries, which still exist for the most part, but we had one cemetery and that was what is today Oakland Cemetery. Second cemetery doesn't start until the 1880s, that's Westview. And then you get a bunch more municipal, uh, not municipal, but private cemeteries developing like right up through like the 1920s. But when you compare that to the cemeteries in New England, which at that point had already been established for a century, it's a very different settlement pattern right. and the cemeteries are definitely different. Are they and associated? Not, oh, sorry. Oh no, go, go ahead. Yeah. In, in the South, are they associated with churches more often or is it more of a, a village or town that a when they first begin establishing communal burying grounds? So a lot of times you have both happening simultaneously, but once they do start to develop, a lot of times it is a city cemetery. 
as opposed to churches. That's not to say that you are not going to see a lot of church arts, but you know, you start to see those develop more in like the 20s, 30s, mm-hmm. um, if they are older than that. So I think a lot of that had to do with, again, shifting patterns. So here in the South, in the 1920s, we got hit with the bull weevil epidemic, which um, basically wiped out the cotton crops. So you start to see a lot of shift in settlement patterns where people are living even before the Great Depression. Um, so you don't have a lot of the migration. And so that changes the way that a lot of people live. And so I think with that, you started to have rural congregations that moved to more populated towns for work cultural but, landscapes people cultural landscapes no a hundred percent yeah no yeah. i i think that the, the bull weevil people don't talk about it enough about how it changed the south um and people don't think about the fact that even like mills you know people think of mills as being a very new england thing there were a ton of mills in the south because you know what? it was a lot cheaper to ship cotton a couple of towns over to weave it into cloth that was to ship it all the way up to Lowell, Massachusetts or wherever it was. So, you know, we have mill villages here. We have all, a lot of the things that you have in New England, we have in the South. They just look a little bit different. So there's definitely a lot of that. Um, I will also say that one of the major factors, and not to say that this never happened up North because it certainly did, but to a far lesser degree is that the segregation of cemeteries is much more extreme in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, And in many places, so despite the fact that, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education ends segregation officially, separate but equal in 1954, it's usually 1970 is the date that I use for desegregation in the South. And that was a surprise to me when I first moved here. I did not realize it took that long, but then again, you know, they, you know, the National Guard had to desegregate schools in Boston right around the same time. Mm. Um, history is not always linear. Not yeah. Everywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, there are still fights to desegregate many cemeteries in the South up until the early 70s. Um, so a lot of Black church congregations, you will see more Black church cemeteries than necessarily white populations because the church was at the center of the Black community. There is no separation, and one second, uh, I have a book right here on my shelf, The Black <laughs> Church and the African-American Experience. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, so I mean, it, it like you cannot underrate it, and it's something as like a, somebody who writes about cultural history, you know, when we talk about a Black church, we talk less about the religion and more about its social importance. And cemeteries were the same thing. Even prior to the end of slavery, funerals were often one of the few places that enslaved persons were allowed to gather in large groups. Mm. So looking at the cultural importance of cemeteries as places of cultural expression, I I mean, to me, can't be underrated. And it's something that frankly, we still have a lot of research to do here in Atlanta. Our only official historian is a man named Franklin Garrett. He wrote an exhaustive 11 volume history of cemeteries in Atlanta, which it is very good. And he did it all on a bicycle in the 1930s, which is pretty (laughs) impressive. So he would ride his bicycle around and he would find these cemeteries and give directions. Um, But he only did white cemeteries. Oh, uh aha. So for black cemeteries were associated with black churches, well, sort of twofold because a they wouldn't have been allowed in the white the the larger white communities communal uh burying ground is that right and then because their their life revolved around the church it would just make sense that that would also be where you'd be buried you'd be buried with your community members correct okay yes both of them are equally true now our municipal cemetery here in atlanta um oakland which was started in 1850, did originally have a portion called Slave Square, which mm. was later removed. Um, and they removed all the remains from Slave Square to the Potter's Field to make more room for the burial of whites. Um, so it was an actual spot for slaves to be buried in that cemetery? Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, so in the original six acres of Oakland, which is now 48 acres. And then later there was a completely separate separate segregated like separated by paths into a separate section like you often see with jewish sections of cemeteries where they have to be separated out Mm -hmm. 
there's a now a the historic black burial grounds within Oakland. Um, so sometimes in municipal cemeteries, they would be there. Often they're tucked in the back. They are the worst parts of land where it's low and marshy and boggy and not very nice. But uh, so in, in municipal cemeteries, they are often just segregated. But for the most part, you do have separate either churchyards or later on incorporated cemeteries. And Atlanta actually has the first non- I always get this word wrong, Illimocenary organization, which is non-charitable organization that was started by African-Americans in the United States and that's Southview Cemetery. Oh, okay. Yeah, Southview has been very much in the news in the past two years because first John Lewis was buried there and then more recently Hank Aaron. Oh, wow. It It is also where Mama and Papa King are buried and where Martin Luther King Jr. was buried for the first two years after his assassination before he was moved to the King Center. Wow. So that's a very high profile cemetery to have in Atlanta. It's in Atlanta? It is. Okay. Yes. It's in South, uh, South East, Southeast, Southwest. It's South Atlanta. Everything here is by quadrants. So Southwest Atlanta um, on Jonesboro Road. Um, and it's quite a remarkable cemetery. It really is. A lot, a lot of history there. Um, they have a whole row that they call Mortician's Row because um, of all the Black funeral homes. So there's some really grand monuments there marking the graves of all the people who buried all the people, which I think is really fun. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So they sort of have their own club. <laughs> Very much so. And uh, and it's really cool because they've been trying to, so Auburn Avenue is the, his, uh, I shouldn't say historically Black Street, but it is now historically Black Street, which is at the center of the Martin Luther King Historic District. And Martin Luther King was born um, off Auburn Avenue, and it's where Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he preached and all of those things. But it's also where a lot of the Black mortuaries were. Um, and so you can still see Hogabrooks and Cox Brothers, and all those storefronts are still there, which I think is really great. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. Well, that's, I mean, that I mean, it makes sense. It's such a, Atlanta is sort of this, just the epitome of what you think of for like a Southern city for the most, even though it's relatively new, which I didn't know until I talked to you <laughs> last week or two weeks ago, I didn't realize it was such a new city, but that's, uh, and, and it's also very modern. It's in, it's kind of a, it's up and coming and, or it's already arrived with. And you bought the marketing deal. <laughs> yes, the capital of the new South. Yes. We, we have marketed ourselves very well at an airport. I know that. And I will say that there are multiple cemeteries inside Hartsfield-Jackson. Well, that that is a very interesting thing because uh, as you you clearly with your line of work as an urban planner are very familiar with and as an anthropologist in my work as an archaeologist, that is something that does come up quite frequently. And there's always that question of what do you do with an old cemetery that's that used to be way out in the middle of the woods that now is suddenly in the middle of this very desirable industrial area or airport. What what have been some of your experiences with with that good and bad? <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. Um, so prior to moving over to urban planning, I worked in cultural resource management. So I worked for a engineering firm who our primary client was GDOT, the Georgia Department of Transportation. What folks might not be aware of is that um, NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, requires that you do cultural resource management for both historic and archeological resources on any project that requires federal money or in certain states, also state funding. Right. Um, so this applies to roads. If you are renovating a post office, you know, like it, it's a wide range of different types of projects. Um, so certainly, um, if you are working with federal aviation on an airport, you're going to have to do it. If you're working with federal highways or the U S army Corps of engineers or any of those. So I spent a lot of time doing this for roads. It's very difficult <laughs> because the fact is that being next to a four lane highway is damaging in ways that even if you avoid a cemetery, even if you are away from it. One of the biggest challenges I found is that people tend to think of cemeteries as being completely passive. You know, engineers would love to joke with me, well, it's not like we're gonna wake anybody up. No, 
but you're in the cemetery and you're trying to hear the minister at grandma's funeral and a semi rolls by. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. HUD back in the 1970s said that cemeteries were transient places and that they should be relegated to the noise zones of airports or under highway overpasses, which certainly they exist in those places. A hundred percent they do. But that does not take into account all of the things that we already discussed and the fact that cemeteries are not just a place to bury the dead. And what does pollution, what does litter, what do, you know, damage from car accidents, what can all of those things do to a cemetery? And they can have a ton of impact in that sense. Yeah. I think we've all seen that cemetery that's right off the road and somebody, you know, is drunk driving or gets in an accident and they flip over three or four headstones and can also get badly hurt in the process. Right. So I know I did mitigation not too long ago on a project where they were widening a road and they weren't coming that close to the cemetery. But one of the things that we really worked with the church who owned this churchyard was to get them to build a retraining wall. So if that accident happens, something's going to stop them, a mm -hmm. guardrail, a retaining wall, something is going to add that extra level of protection because once that headstone's destroyed, yeah, you can get a replacement, but it's not the original. So give people the respect they deserve in that sense. Um, and, you know, I've had, I'm lucky I've had mostly good experiences, um, but I have also seen examples where in the past, a lot of wrong was done. Um, <laughs> We can blame Eisenhower and the highway system for a lot of that. Uh, and I will say Hartsfield-Jackson, the two examples I talked about there, both of them, they are still accessible to the public. The folks can still visit their family there. They are well-maintained. I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff down in Louisiana. I have seen cemeteries that are in the middle of, you know, there's a cemetery in the middle of the largest oil refinery in the world down in Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Um, Sounds like a lovely place, Cancer Alley. <laughs> holy jesus <laughs> I, I, I could say i didn't come up with that term uh, that, that was there before me but you know seeing these where it's just you know again these folks who were buried in you know the 1870s didn't know that this was going to be incredibly valuable petroleum land 100 years in the future i think that there is a responsible way that you can deal with these things i do think that legally families should always have the right to access them and I think that if you can be reasonable about the level of protection you give, you 100% should do that. And uh, the hill I will die on is you don't move a cemetery unless there is literally no other option. Yeah. And th this is something that I think that a lot of engineers were taught. Well, you know, sometimes there's a good reason to No, there's not. <laughs> and I can say that as somebody who has done cemetery removals. Um, I can say that as somebody who's seen them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's just never a good option if you can avoid it. And I think people would be surprised to know how, that, that it is an option, that that is something that is very much on the, an option for all of these developments that, or not all of them, but removal of a cemetery is is, is something that routinely happens a lot of the time. I'm not so much sure if it happens as much as it used to, but um, it's, it's, I think feels like cemeteries were one of the last things to be taken seriously as, uh, you know, they can bulldoze a house. I'm still not happy about that when that happens or, or knock over a stone wall. But I, I also agree that that's one of the things, man, you just don't mess with dead people, leave them alone. No. And, you know, it's, and I will say I did, I definitely, uh, I definitely ruined a young couple's day the other day because they were talking about the Denver Botanical Gardens. And I, I said to them, I said, oh, I have the best story about the Denver Botanical Gardens. I was like, do you know that that used to be a cemetery? And I was like, well, technically it still is. They didn't do such a great job removing the bodies. And they're just looking at me. They're like, what? I said, oh yeah. And I was like, Cheeseman Park too. I said, that all used to be cemeteries. I was like, that was actually the inspiration for the movie Poltergeist. And they was looking at me and they go, we're getting married there. <laughs> and I said, you'll have extra guests. I was just going to say, it'll be well attended. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, no, but I definitely think that I ruined their beers, but you know what? The more, you know, Again, I, I understand that there are responsible ways. And like I said, I, I have seen removals done and I have seen them do, done in a respectful way. 
and sometimes you do need to you need to move cemeteries because of really bad erosion oh, or yeah. like there's no way to mitigate so like i'm not saying that there's never a reason to yeah. do it it just don't take the easy way out i guess that would be my encouragement to people when they think about these i sometimes think about you know like i said creative mitigation um to protect them and it's there was a period of time from like the 1930s through the 1960s where cemeteries were not really seen as sacred and this is perhaps the thing that surprises people the most is that you know the way we view cemeteries today which can be problematic sometimes but is very different than the way that cemeteries were seen historically people have not always seen them as super sacred super important spaces and in fact for most of history that's how people saw them uh, and I've done a number of episodes. I did an episode about the Tennessee Valley Authority. I did an episode about the Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done a number of episodes about these type of government projects and how they impact cemeteries. And I like to talk about these things because you know, even if you go to the TVA website today, like a huge portion of it is dedicated to cemeteries. I don't know how much of that story is told or communicated, but it, it's definitely important. And they kept very good records. I will give them a lot of credit. And the same thing happened when they moved the graves to build the Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts. But again, that context is lost. Right. So it's like if the family chooses to have their relative move to another cemetery, the people that you're buried near in your cemetery, that also tells a story. Right. The cemetery itself is a landscape. And the juxtaposition of, oh, well, they bought that stone because they saw these people had that stone. They liked it and they wanted the same stone. And you start to see patterns and you see, you know, families that bought plots together. And that context is lost. Yes, that is. And the more research I do doing various projects in in genealogy, that's always one of the things that they tell you is like, go to the cemetery because you don't, if you're having a difficulty establishing relationships and like, I'm not, you know, the records aren't great. Like, I don't know, maybe they are related. Maybe they're not. And you go to the cemetery and oh, they're buried right next to each other. That's just like another piece that fits into uh, the narrative that you're trying to recreate. And like, yeah, if that's, if they're removed or the stone is damaged, that that's gone. You can't make that connection anymore. Yeah, no. And it's, it's interesting to me, even within architectural history and historic preservation, how little is taught about cemeteries Hmm. um, in classes. And, you know, I was certainly not encouraged to pick cemeteries as my, as my specialty. And so a lot of my information came from seeking out other avenues and, you know, reaching out to the association for gravestone studies and reading my enormous pile of books on the wall but it's amazing to me, even sometimes like when I'll put a report out to somebody that's been in the business 20 years and, you know, I'll use what I think are really common terms, like even things like rural cemetery or Memorial park. And they'll give me this blank look like they have no idea what I'm talking about. And I think that's kind of really interesting because I think that they are missing out on a lot by not knowing those things. And I'm not judging them because I think it's also just the way that they're taught and very few schools offer a cemetery-based class. Or if they do, it's it's you know, a footnote. And if you're not really interested in materials preservation, you, you aren't really pushed in that direction. So for me, there, there is something that's lost in translation there. And I would love to see more people know more about it because I think it would only enhance their knowledge and their researching abilities. Mm, that's interesting. I, w- I wasn't aware that it, it wasn't part of the of, of the curriculum, you know, it's like a standard curriculum for urban planning. You'd think it would be because every every town has a cemetery. Uh, it's part of you have to plan for a cemetery. You know, nowadays it's part of that whole process. But yeah, it's it's like this cultural blind spot that we've had for quite a while that it's just sort of an afterthought. And one of those things that um, when we do archaeological surveys, you can't that's sort of one of the things you're kind of always keeping your mind open for because yeah, it might show up on a map. It might not. If it's a little uh, two-person cemetery, there may not be any existing records that show you uh, exactly where it was, but but there are clues that you can look at in the landscape that might tell you otherwise. So, and also within cemeteries that everybody's buried within <laughs> the walls. That's not true either. So and that's- yeah, and that's something that that we're trying to get people in in the towns around here to start thinking about because we have a number of very old cemeteries that, for one reason or another, were never 
I don't know what the word is, uh, closed out. <laughs> I'm not sure what the word is, but, and people over the years have bought plots in them and plan to be buried in them. And so they're grandfathered in that they can be in. It's like, well, actually, do we know that there's not somebody there already, you know, or that there's not somebody on the other side of this wall that you want to put a road by or something like that. So just bringing that to people's attention has been a, a big deal uh, around around here for the past little while. I always tell people invest in a tile probe. It'll pay for itself. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it always amazes to me when people are like, well, can you tell if there's a grave here? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I got a tile probe in my car. And then they look at me, they're like, Freak. And, I was like yeah. <laughs> and I was like, but I was like, it's the, I was like, I, I don't have GPR on me, but I was like a tile probe. is going to tell you really fast. If there's some sort of anomaly there, if you should even look right. I said, if you go out there, I said, and everything's pretty hard packed. I was like, yeah, odds are you're good, but, or I wouldn't invest in the five grand it's going to cost you to get the GPR. But yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because I, I haven't quite finished it yet. It hasn't been approved by Shippo. But uh, one of the big projects I did was a, a mitigation booklet for a 12 mile new location road. And it was going to impact a number of historic farmsteads and a large archeological district, which was a former rice plantation from the 1700s. And at first my reviewer thought I was crazy because I wanted to put in this big two page spread where I, there was a family cemetery plot in the local church. And I said, bear with me. I said, I promise you, it'll be worthwhile. And again, I was able to show not just in this cemetery enclosure, which was a walled enclosure with maybe 30 graves from the two interconnected families, but also like the last woman who died before she died, she appointed caretakers to the house and the caretakers when they died were buried right outside the wall. Mm. And then you could see that there were other families who they married into who were all around. And if you looked at it and it was the whole book that I had written about these interconnected families with their interconnected farms that married each other's children. And it was incredible because you could see it all there, this little ethnic community of Austrian Salzburger, Lutheran immigrants, they were all there. Wow. And you and could. I pulled out little pictures and I had, you know, little arrows and everything like that. And I was able to explain some of the symbolism and things like that. And afterwards they were like, this was so much more logical than just putting a family tree. It's so much easier to see like the pairs of like the two gravestones together. And, and I was like, I told you. Right. And that way you can account for everybody mm -hmm. cemetery too, to make sure that, you know, there aren't some stragglers off in there. Cause that is something, especially I'm sure with plantations that you have to be especially aware of, especially uh, considering that they're probably slave, definitely slaves <laughs> down there. Where are they buried? Where are they, you know, where might they be? Uh, that's all it has to be considered, I'm sure, that kind of research. And I will say that this particular family, there were four formerly enslaved persons who were buried in the family plot with them, and they had marked graves. And in the traditional style, which you can see in New England as well, they were marked as faithful servant. Mm. And again, this was something that I tried to bring up. I was like, do, do you know how big a deal this is? That they chose to have their formerly enslaved persons who became paid servants after emancipation, they stayed with them their entire lives and then they were buried. And they're like, well, yeah, they were, they, you know, they had a close relationship. I was like, you don't understand. Cemeteries in the South weren't desegregated for, in this case, another 70 years. Wow. Like this is really significant. Like this tells a story. It does. And these people had families and they still chose to be buried with this. And I was like, it says a lot about these folks and about what they did and about their value system and culturally how they may have been different from other people. And again, I, I think that the cemeteries tell such a compelling story. Others might look at it and not see what I see, but that but again, that is why we do what we do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. I should say enslaved people, not slaves. That's, uh, that's and a, it's, it's something that I am consistently trying to work on. Um, and I don't hold it against anyone because I think it's something that it's so deeply ingrained in our American educational system. Is, and yeah. for so long, it was something that I think that we were told was completely all right. And I think that we're, we're working on it. And I think that that's the most important thing personally. And that's a, a fantastic point about what's example of what cemeteries can show you that wouldn't show up in any kind of written record that talks about relationships like deep personal caring relationships in some cases that that a family tree just isn't going to to show that to you 
No, and I think that, I know, it's it's a very compelling idea to me to see not just how things were in the past, but how they have also continued to evolve and how cemeteries are evolving landscapes. I mean, there are often cemeteries that were, you know, founded 170 years ago that are still active today. How do they compare? How do they look? Um, do they have design regulations that are limiting? Do they only allow certain types of monuments? Are there still sections, um, you know, that can show a changing landscape in terms of, you know, ethnic populations? Uh, I, I think all of that is very, very interesting. The cemetery that I lived next to when I lived outside of Philadelphia was exactly like that, where you could see that there was a big Southeastern Asian population that had moved in. And there was a whole section that was black granite with, you know, characters from three or four different languages um, with gold leaf. And they look completely different than anything else in the cemetery, but you could see that there was this emerging cultural group there and they were very clearly represented in this cemetery that had been around for 150 years. Wow. And yeah, just the, the collective of that, how it changes over time. It's it, like you said in the very beginning, bringing it back around. <laughs> Cemeteries are one of the only things that endure in our neighborhoods and our communities. That's the one thing that generally or, or most often doesn't change. It's going to stay in very stay where it was originally laid out and to see how that changes the comings and goings of different populations and um, is all represented right there. That's also something that I find is so completely fascinating about cemeteries that that can tell us. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for me going forward is the fact that there are so many cemeteries that are at risk. And even ones that you, like you said, in your town where it's everyone knows the cemeteries there, it's not like it's overgrown, it's not like it's abandoned. The abandoned and overgrown cemeteries are a whole other issue. Right. But even cemeteries that are there, I think that just in general, people don't really know what to do with them. Um, I was talking to our law department at the city um, and these people, they know property law forwards and backwards. And they even told me, they said, you know, in law school, cemetery law is like a footnote mm. it's a footnote on a footnote and i'm not saying that to say that they don't know what they're talking about because 100 they do they went to law school and i have asked friends of mine who are in law school and they say yeah it's like nobody really talks about it because like you just don't have to deal with it but like you said there's a cemetery in every town most towns have multiple cemeteries you would think it would be something that we talk about more but Cemeteries get forgotten. And like I said, most people in general, unless you have to go for a funeral, they don't encounter cemeteries. And so they don't really know what to do with them. And does this, does that concept tie into of uh, what you were mentioning earlier about the, uh, the Atlantic Cemetery Network? Is that part of what that's trying to address? It is. So yeah, so in Atlanta last month, we launched a cemetery network. And it is still an emerging concept. Um, <laughs> well, mainly because it has not been done before. I reached out to other organizations and there are a lot of nonprofits, friends groups, um, and you know, foundations who care for a specific cemetery or they'll care for a small group of cemeteries. And then there are organizations through towns, whether through the historical society or something else, who are in charge, again, of a specific set of cemeteries. You know, it'll be the historic cemetery board for the town of, you know, Whoville, whatever it is. In this case, what the Atlanta Cemetery Network is, is it is a partnership between the public, private corporations, government in terms of the city of Atlanta being involved, looking at how together we can create a steering committee and then moving forward, a network whose goal is to educate the public, both about the importance of cemeteries, um, their significant history, bring attention particularly to historically African-American cemeteries, teach about best practices of preservation, look at ways to help facilitate ongoing care. So how do we give good, in good instruction to friends groups if people are interested in forming friends groups? informing just the general public if you are curious hey is there a cemetery in my neighborhood is there a way to catalog and create a database that's our, our first big step is to create a database of cemeteries in atlanta because we have more than 70 within the city limits which wow. 
if you ask most people, they'd be like, I don't know, there's a couple, you know, yeah, maybe, <laughs> but you know, in the city of Atlanta, we have more than 70, which is a lot. And, you know, something like 60% of them are under an acre. So they are very small. They are mostly family cemeteries. And many of them are in a state that most people would not be happy about. And in fact, they could walk right past them and not even know there's a cemetery there. So this is our big goal. Uh, and it's, like I said, our, we're still working on clearing up exactly what our work program is going to be, but, uh, we have a lot of very enthusiastic and very committed citizens who have stepped in and are doing, you know, the work of saying, Hey, I want to get out there. I want to put myself out there. I want to be a part of this. You know, we're starting to identify more goals and narrow things down. So I won't lie, it's one of the most exciting things about my job is that when my grad school professors told me I would never find a job where I would get to use my knowledge, um, that, that has quickly become not true. And uh, you, you made the job, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, it, it is. And, uh, and I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, the Historical Glen Foundation, which is the nonprofit, so the city of Atlanta owns Historical Glen Cemetery. But the Historical Oakland Foundation since the 1970s has been running the cemetery for us. They do an incredible amount of preservation work, programming. While the city might mow the grass and do that kind of general maintenance, the Historical Oakland Foundation, they take on the lion's share of work. Uh, and Ashley Shares, who is their director of preservation, she has worked very hard to make this dream a reality before I even came on board with the program. So I will give full credit where credit is due. And like I said, we have a number of other individuals who have stepped forward from different communities. Some of them are just people who say, hey, there's a cemetery in my neighborhood. I want to do something about it. Grassroots, there's a lot to be said for it. Mm -hmm. There really is. So I certainly, I mean, I would love to update people as we get further along. We only launched on February 24th. So recently, it's been oh, less than It's long. been a week. You haven't finished it yet? <laughs> I know. But I have big dreams. I have a lot of big dreams for it. And uh, hopefully a lot of them will come to fruition. We've got, uh, we've got another big meeting planned in May. So we're, we're working towards it. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting and, and would be, you know, something that I <laughs> like the goal of, of most places to have some sort of infrastructure like that, where you can have, it just goes, goes so far and, and helping people access the uh, the resource and also preserve the resource and have it become much more tangible for people then it's not such a huge ask when you need things cleaned up or if you need uh, some some volunteers or investment that kind of thing because it's it's one of those things that it it only enhances a neighborhood to have a nice upkept cemetery it means somebody's here somebody cares somebody's paying attention you know to what's going on so it's not just a place where dead people are resting it's really a living part of the community particularly in urban areas mm. um, and it's it's interesting because there are a lot of cemeteries who you know if you were to look at them and their condition you would say well nobody cares and there was one of these cemeteries in particular that I was very pleasantly surprised when we opened it up and we said to people, one of the last things we said is if, like, if there's a cemetery that you think that we should know about, please tell us. And at least six different groups or individuals told us about this one cemetery, oh. which I had been there once. And I just thought it was the saddest thing. Um, and so I found out that the neighborhood organization, the neighborhood planning unit, which Atlanta has broken up into larger groups of neighborhoods. So the neighborhood, the neighborhood planning unit, the Atlanta History Center, and two individuals, in addition to us, all came forward and were like, we're worried about this cemetery. And if you looked at it, you wouldn't think that anybody in the world cared about it. And so the fact is, people do notice. And as Atlanta grows, which we're projected to grow by another 3 million in the next decade. Wow we're going to continue to lose green space. And so I think that now, if ever there was a time to work on preserving cemeteries and work on raising their profile as being an important green space and something that's important to the urban landscape, th this is the time to do it. Right. Because that wasn't even a concept 10 years ago, like green space in urban areas, not even not even, you know, on anybody's radar, but you have these ready-made green spaces already there. They just have to be made a little more green. <laughs> well, I, and it's funny because, you know, I feel like everybody in urban planning right now wants to talk about pocket parks. 
excuse me, you already have a pocket park. Yeah. And, you know, and these are not active cemeteries. So it's not like you have to worry about, you know, navigating around funerals. And a lot of them have, you know, a decent amount of open green space in them. Why not use that? And, you know, I think it's a great idea to use them as urban green spaces. You know, if there is unused land in a cemetery, why can't it become a container garden? Hmm. Why can't you have apiaries there? Why can't you raise bees and make that a vital area? Um, if you are in a very concrete, heavy area, wouldn't you like to have a small place that you can take your kids and go for a walk where they can see things and they can learn about history? And, you know, maybe we can have some informational panels that tell you a little bit about the history of the community that was there. That to me, it, I mean, aside from, you know, throwing a couple of benches into an empty lot, like, I think it's a much more dynamic and much more rewarding urban experience. Right. Personally. Yeah, it's, a, but it's an it's anchor. Fun. It's an anchor instead of just, yeah, just a, a bench looking at a brick wall somewhere or something. And that's it. So, I mean, I would love to see like that. Again, that's very high level. That's step 718. We're on step three. Yeah. So. Um, but th that would be, in my opinion, like part of the dream. And I think that there are a lot of these cemeteries which do have the potential to be just that. That's awesome. That's great. I'll just wrap up with one final question. Uh, what is your opinion about kale? I, I need to include this. It's going to be a thing from now on. Kale, pro-kale, anti-kale. It's Gale and Kale. Um, kale or Kale, I would say. Kale or Kale. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say that I am team Gale on this, and I think Kale is disgusting. Woohoo! Um, I, I, can, I can handle it in, like, a smoothie if there's a banana or something that is going to mask the flavor. Mm -hmm. But, other, like, Kale potato chips, get out of here. Yeah, get please. out of here. That's unnatural. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't mind spinach. I don't mind collards. Like, I am happy to eat lots of other greens, but... You can keep the kale. Exactly. I don't mind spinach. It's but what it is, and I was a little worried finding out you were Slytherin that you might like kale. So I think I'm not that green. I'm not that <laughs> so, who are the people in your neighborhood? Yes, yes, yes. I'm a 44-year-old woman who still sings songs and takes life cues from Sesame Street. But a lesson so seemingly simple as, there are worlds outside your own experience, is one worth remembering these days, I think. Though we may not share the same physical spaces, there are ways of connecting to people with whom we have shared interests. And conversely, ways of connecting to the people with whom we might share the same physical space, but maybe not so many interests. As my conversation with Liz reminds me, there are all kinds of neighborhoods, and they all require effort to maintain, not unlike, say, a cemetery. And building off of those ideas Liz put forward, cemeteries can be more than just a place where we've buried long-dead people. If we start to think of cemeteries as assets instead of impediments, whole game changes. What if we used cemeteries as conduits for connection? Celebrated them as part of the cultural, physical, and historical landscape. As sources of green space, and once again integrated them into our communities. Utilizing what's already there, cemeteries could be a ready-made nexus for a neighborhood. This is not a new idea, but one we've abandoned in lieu of the capitalism of modern development. But just because that's how things have been done, doesn't mean we can't say, that was wrong, and it's not how we're going to do this anymore. Just imagine green spaces and oases in urban and rural areas. Places where people can meet up, walk, have picnics, even plant gardens. Gardens with tomatoes and peas and carrots. But hey, not kale. Oh, God. Yuck. Shake it off. Shake it off. 
matter, no matter, no matter. You know, Liz Clappin doesn't like Kale either. Another reason, she is a person in my neighborhood. Special thanks for this episode go to interviewee Liz Clappin. I had a lot of fun with Liz. So much so that I did an interview for her podcast a few weeks after this conversation. So check out that interview by searching Tomb with a View podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you want to broaden your cemetery and taphophile knowledge, check out Tomb with a View's back episodes, where Liz's every word is impeccably researched and thoughtfully conveyed. Go listen. You'll be a smarter and better person for it. Transcripts of every episode are available on our website, thesecretlifeofdeath.com. Music provided with permission by Epidemic Sound. For more information about this podcast, weekly posts, and fun extras, find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Secret Life of Death Podcast and on Twitter at TSLOD Podcast. You can download our show from the website or find us on any podcast platform. Please subscribe and remember to rate the show. It really helps. Thank you.